uh, we're in a series, we've uh, kind of <coughs> talked as ODR, which stands for orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And this morning, uh, and for the next few Sundays, we're going to take people in the Bible and kind of apply that, those seasons or times in their lives. And this morning, we're going to talk about the book of Job. And uh, the book of Job, to me, is, uh, represents a, uh, all three of these seasons in the life of one individual. So let me give you a little breakdown on the book of Job. Uh, the book of Job has, uh, the, it starts off with Job being very oriented. And so its first part is orientation. And that's chapters 1, verses 1 through 12. And then immediately after that, uh, starting in verse 13, he enters into a season of disorientation, which go all the way through chapter 31, uh, actually the end of 31. And it has him talking with his friends and, and they're going through all this uh, analysis of well, why is all this happening and, and things. And we'll, get, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But basically, I'll give you the punchline here. The book of Job says that what goes on on the outside does not necessarily reflect on what's going on on the inside. And that the outside is not necessarily what everything that we think and see. That there's, there's an invitation to something uh, more. And I'm the spiritual companions pastor, so I'm kind of the mystical one. So this is kind of why I chose this book. Because there isn't a whole lot, if you're looking at this book for an answer of why am I suffering? Or why does God let this happen? You're going to find that God doesn't answer that question. And so before you get disappointed, I want to put that out there. But what you will find is that God cares about you, and no matter what happens, he's going to stick with you. So the last part is reorientation, and that's from 32 to 40 to the end of the book. And so why don't we look here at uh, going into the orientation and disorientation part. And so. Uh, my uh, Pastor Cotts has graciously agreed to do illustrations here. So I'm going to be reading from the scripture and he's going to be putting up illustrations. So if you don't like the way I read, at least you'll see pretty pictures and things and, and you can stay in there. Okay. So this is Job says, once there was a man from Ooze by the name of Job. He was a very good man his character spotless, his integrity unquestioned. In fact, he so believed in God that he sought to honor him in all things. He deliberately avoided evil in all of his affairs. He had sons and daughters. He owned thousands of sheep, camels, oxes, female donkeys, and a large number of servants. Among Easterners, he was the most powerful and influential man. His sons, who were all wealthy landowners too, all used to gather together on each other's birthdays and special occasions. 
the brothers would take turns hosting the others in their homes, and they would invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. When these days of feasting were through, Job would call all of his family to his own house and purify them, rising up early in the morning to offer burnt sacrifices to each one. Job did this again and again. Orientation, right? Job has a great spiritual life, has great prosperity. Everything makes sense, okay? That's the characteristic of orientation. And it's also a way in which we want our life to be, that we have everything explained and things. But life is not that way. And we're going to see, at least in this next part, what happens. So, now one day it came for the sons of God, heavenly messengers, to present themselves to the Eternal One, to give reports and receive instructions. The accuser was with them. The Eternal One said to the accuser, Where have you been? The accuser responded, Oh, roaming here and there, running about the earth and observing its inhabitants. The Eternal One re responded, Well, have you looked into the man Job, my servant? He is unlike any other person on the whole earth, a very good man, his character spotless, his integrity unquestioned. In fact, he so believes in me that he seeks in all things to honor and deliberately avoids evil in all of his affairs. The accuser said, I won't argue with you that he is pious, but is all of this believing in you and honoring you for no reason? Haven't you encircled him with your very own protection? And not only him, but his entire household and all that he has. Not only this, but your blessing accompanies whatever his hand touches. And see how his possessions have grown? It's easy to be so pious in the face of such prosperity. So now extend your hand, destroy all of these possessions of his, and he will certainly curse you right to your face. The Eternal One responded, I delegate this task to you. His possessions are now in your hand. One thing though, you are not to lay a finger on the man himself. Job must not be touched. With that, the accuser left the court and the Eternal's presence. Now one day, all of Job's children were gathered together in the roof of Job's firstborn, their usual celebration, feasting and drinking wine. When a messenger came to Job, and the messenger said, we were in the field, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing nearby, and out of nowhere, the Sabians attacked. They stole your animals, all the doxes and donkeys, and as for your servants, they put their swords to us, and everyone is dead, every last one, except me. I am the only one who got away from the fields to tell you. And while the words were still leaving the messenger's mouth, another messenger arrived, and the messenger said, lightning is struck. The fire of God fell from the sky and burned the sheep alive, alive. Shepherds too, all of them burned. Everyone is dead, every last one except me. I'm the only one who got away from the pastures to tell you. And while the words were still leaving the me that messenger's mouth, a third messenger arrived and the messenger said, Chaldeans, three groups of them attacked us. They converged on the animals and stole all of them. And as for your servants, they put their swords to us and everyone is dead, every last one except me. I'm the only one who got away to tell you. 
And while the words were still leaving the messenger's mouth, yet a fourth messenger arrived. The fourth messenger said, all of your children were gathered together today under the roof of your firstborn to celebrate, eating a feast and drinking wine. And then a powerful wind rose up from the other side of the desert and it struck down all four corners of the house. It collapsed. Everyone is dead, all of those young people, every last one except for me. I am the only one who got away from your son's house to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground. Face down, Job sprawled in the, wor in the dirt to worship. And in all of this, Job neither sinned nor did he make foolish charges against God. Talk about a bad day, huh? And, and all of those things that uh, Satan had, or the accuser, that's another word for Satan, had brought up, God let him take it. Because God believed and knew that Job's love for him, his commitment for him, was not about what he got. Now, Job's gonna go through a process of learning that. But God knew in, in the very deepest part of Job that it wasn't about that, that, that he loved God. And the invitation, I believe, for us in disorientation is to look in, inside of us and see what's there. Because in that, in that looking inside of us, we can truly know, well, what do I believe is the nature of who God is and how he loves him? And in, uh, we aren't gonna go through all of the uh, things, but uh, you're gonna, if you went through all of the responses by the, his friends, they're all outward focused and not inward. So let me, the story gets worse for Job, unfortunately. And so it, it goes, now one day it was time for the sons of God, God's heavenly messengers to present themselves to the eternal one, to give reports and receive instructions. The accuser was there again, also ready to present himself to him. The eternal one said to the accuser, where have you been? The accuser responded, oh, roaming here and there, running about the earth and observing its inhabitants. The eternal one said, well, have you looked into the man, Job, my servant? He's unlike any person on the whole earth, a very good man, his character spotless, his integrity unquestioned. In fact, he so believes in me that he seeks in all things to honor me and deliberately avoids evil in all of his affairs. And I have found him to be unswervingly committed despite the fact that you provoked me to wreck him for no particular reason, to take away my protection and his prosperity. The accuser replied, well, as they say, skin for skin, it is so easy to be pious in the face of such health. Surely a man will give what he has for the sake of his own life. So now extend your hand, afflict him, both bone and body, and he will curse you right to your face. The eternal one said, well then, this is how it will be. He is now in your hand. One thing though, you will not take his life, 
Job must not be killed. With that, the accuser left the court and the eternal's presence, and he infected Job with a painful skin disease. From the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, his body was covered with boils. Job took a broken piece of pottery to scrape his wounds, and while he sat in the ashes just outside of the town, his wife found him. Job's wife said, will you not swerve in your commitments? Curse God and die. Job responded, you're speaking nonsense like some depraved woman. Are we to accept the good that comes from God and not accept the bad? Throughout all of this, Job did not sin. He would not curse God as the accuser predicted. Now Job had three friends. And when the three received word of the horror that had befallen Job, they left their homes and they agreed to meet together to mourn with and comfort their friend. They approached the town ash heap, but they were still far off when they caught sight of Job. His sores were so severe and his appearance so changed by the condition that he almost, that they almost didn't recognize him. Upon seeing him and apprehending the extent of his suffering, they cried out, burst into tears, tore their robes, reached down into the dust and ashes at their feet, and threw ash into the air and onto their heads. Then they sat with him on the ground and stayed there with him for seven days and seven nights, mourning as if he were already dead. And all the while, no one spoke a single word because they saw his profound agony and grief. You know, if, if the book of Job and his, the, his friend's responses had ended right there, uh, I could tell you that the response was really good, but it didn't. And, and uh, I'm not gonna read the, the rest of the book here. I invite you to read it. But what they basically, what Job's friends basically tell Job is two things. One, there must be something wrong with you that God would let this happen. That there must be some sin, the Christian term, or some evil inside of you. And yet, as we read here, it's God who holds Job up as the prime example of someone who has no sin. So they're basically contradicting God and they don't even realize it. And that's gonna be part of their learning. The second thing is, both Job and his friends equate having good things with being able to develop a good relationship. And I believe what part of what Job will, will eventually learn or will become in the process of learning is a good relationship leads to, to good things happening. And it's about being able to have a relationship that is solid, which as Kelvin always says, the relationships is the main thing. To have that solid and everything else will work out. Jesus put it this way, seek first his kingdom and all his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. It was about being able to have that relationship. So let's skip through all of uh, Job's friends, and we're coming to chapter 38, and it says this. 
Out of the raging storm, the eternal one answered Job. So all through the, the prior, there was no interaction with Job and God. But then, Job, but then God responds to it. But notice, out of the raging storm, that God didn't take away the storm. It was out of the raging storm that, that God spoke. And so in the middle of your storm, God wants to speak. And that doesn't mean that everything gets all put together and oriented, but it means that you hear him. And this is what Job's response was. Job answered the eternal one, I know you can do everything. Nothing you can do be foil or frustrated. You asked, who is this that conceals counsel with empty words of no, void of knowledge? And I see that I spoke of, but did not comprehend great wonders that are beyond me. I didn't know. You said, hear me now and I will speak. I'll be asking the questions and you supply the answers. Before I knew only what I heard of you, but now I have seen you. Therefore, I realize the truth. I disavow and mourn all I have said and repent in dust and ashes. So Job realized that there was more to God than he even knew. Even though he was such a pious and righteous man, even though he, he did all the religious things, even though he was recognized as one of the greatest men who were following God at that point, this point in time. It, Job probably lived before Abraham. So this is even before uh, Abraham walked the earth. So Job was a shining example. And after the, the eternal had spoken these words to Job, he turned and spoke to Eliphaz, who's one of Job's friends. And God said to him, my anger is burning against you and your two friends because you have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has. So now gather your friends and bring seven bulls and seven rams. Then go to my servant Job, make a burnt offering for yourselves and he will pray for you. I will accept his prayer despite the fact you have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job did. I will not deal with you according to your foolish ways. Notice something here, okay? God wants a restoration between Job and his friends before he even talks about doing anything about restoring material things and all of this. Even, even to a certain extent, his healing. Because I believe the healing of Job had to take place with a healing of the relationships between he and his friends. And I would invite you in the midst of your storms and things to look at that. Is there relationships that need to be healed? Because to, to heal everything else around it is not gonna be complete. The issue is having a relationship healed. And then from that, this is what happens, right? The Eternal restored the fortunes of Job after he prayed for his friends. He even doubled the wealth he had before. 
All of his brothers and sisters, along with all those he had known earlier, came and shared meals with him at his house. They sympathized with him. They consoled him regarding the great distress the Eternal had brought on him. Each guest gave him a sum of money and each a golden ring. The Eternal One blessed the last part of Job's life even more than the first part. Job also fathered sons and daughters. He, and nowhere in the land, uh, sorry, and after this, Job lived 140 years. He lived to see his children and their children and on to the fourth generation. Then Joseph died, then Job, then Job died, old and satisfied with days. Notice the emphasis here. He, they, he, he does talk about the uh, material things, but most of that part, which I consider reorientation is, that there's a reorientation with relationship, just how important that was. Because he, he reestablishes a relationship with his family and his friends. He even reestablishes his relationship with his wife because they have more children together, okay? And, and so the goal of, of God, even toward us, is not to try to manipulate us into a relationship with him. The goal of God is to make that relationship known to be the pure and genuine and authentic relationship it is, which is a relationship of love. And that no matter what happens, that we can know that God is for us and not against us. You know, uh, I wish I could give you something that would make all of your relationships be wonderful. But that only happens in fairy tales. There is no happily ever after in this life. There's a happily everlasting, that there's a, there's a future ahead where all relationships are wonderful. But on this earth, in, because we live in a broken place, our relationships are gonna face challenges. And part of uh, that can be seen when things outside that we think we have control over are taken away. Because it's a reminder of, we don't control relationships. Relationships are something that are shared. Which means that both parties have to want to come together and have that. And you don't force someone to do that. You, you, the best you can do is love them and be with them and wait. That to me is why the first thing that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13 as a character of love is love is patient. Because when I think of God's love, that's the first thing I think of is his patience. He's willing to wait. No matter how many times I tell him no, he will s s be there and say, okay, let's wait. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't bribe us. He doesn't tell us, you do this and this will be better necessarily. What he will invite us to do is, this is the healthy way. There's this, I'd like to close with a song that I'm gonna read because I can't sing it. And it's a song that I believe 
the author knew about Job's experience. And this is what he writes. And what I would invite you to do is, he's gonna go through a lot of different places. And if you're going through that place, hear the chorus or hear the response that God is with you. Or maybe you know somebody who's going through that. Job had all these, and, and to be able to be a person who has empathy and is willing to just sit and be silent with them and say, I don't know why this is happening. I can't give you reasons. You know, reason is a wonderful thing. I, I, I love being logical, but life is not logical. Life is irrational a lot of times. So what I need is someone to tell me that it's okay that I'm gonna be with you. Even, even though you don't make sense of this, I'm here. So this is called, the song is called The Eye of the Storm. And it goes like this. When the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet, between the black skies and my red eyes, I can barely see. And when I'm feeling like I've let down by my friends and family, I can hear the rain reminding me. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. When my hopes and dreams are far from me and I'm running out of faith, I see the future I pictured slowly fade away. And when the tears of pain and heartache are pouring down my face, I find my peace in Jesus' name. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. When they let me go and I just don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I did my best now. I'm scared to death that we might lose everything. And when a sickness takes my child away and there's nothing I can do, my only hope is to trust you. I trust you, Lord. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor. When my sails are torn, your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. You remain in control in the middle of the war. You guard my soul. You alone are the anchor. When my sails are torn, your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. Let's pray. <laughs>